Welcome to the Ditch Ethics Podcast. My name is Seth Viegas. I'm a PhD candidate at Boston University working on the philosophical ethics of emerging and experimental technologies. Here on the podcast, we talk to scholars and industry experts with an eye towards the future. Today, I'll be having a discussion with one of my main collaborators, Bernd Jorwachter. Bernd is principal at analyticdimensions.com, a consultancy for big data analytics and data science projects. Bernd is also a seasoned practitioner in software engineering, IT architectures, business intelligence, and data analytic solutions. So instead of going into normal kind of description of the conversation and everything, I want to be responsive to some of the feedback we've been getting. In order to do that, I want to explain the key issues that we're going to be talking about today. While the episode itself is going to be talking about CAPTCHAs and the different kinds of things that are necessary in order to avoid say, bots getting into your email account or into other important parts of your computer, I want to talk about something called scaling and how scaling is kind of a critical piece of automation of interface systems in general. So when I'm talking about scaling, I'm specifically referring to how many people can use the given system at any time. Security is one of those things that needs to be scaled. If you build a large data system, and you want users to have access to it, how do you go through a process of verification that is secure but doesn't overly inconvenience the people who are trying to use your system? And this brings us to one of our key questions, which is how do we think about the trade-offs between security and convenience? If we're looking at the ways in which CAPTCHAs are routinely used, it's in order to prove that you're a human. And one of the reasons why this is necessary is actually shown in the Imperva report, which basically talks about how 25% of all traffic is from so-called bad bots, whereas 15% of traffic is from good bots. The good bots are going to be things that make inquiries, you know, finding information that people need, whereas the bad bots are oftentimes trying to access people's accounts, trying to spam people, or doing other things that, well, most of us would probably prefer that they don't do. So in terms of scaling, What's really important to note here is that people increasingly have to interact with automated systems even to prove that they themselves are not human. And so this leads us to a curious situation, as John Mulaney brings up, one of my favorite comedians, of trying to prove to a robot that you are yourself are not a robot. And I think that there are a number of things to keep in mind with this kind of situation that are specifically very ethically charged. Virginia Eubanks gives an example in her book, Automating Inequality of Indiana Medicare and the way that they were processing information on individual cases. What's telling about this particular example is that the system had been completely re-engineered so that it didn't depend on so many people. They did this in part so that more people could actively use the system and hopefully benefit from that system. But in effect, what ended up happening is that the automated system started flagging people for non-compliance at a far higher rate than had been done before. Non-compliance is when someone outright refuses to give the correct information in order to receive their Medicare benefits. However, what ended up happening is that the engineers in creating this particular system redesigned it so that it would automatically flag people for non-compliance if they failed to get their forms back in time. However, there were a number of issues. Basically, the system would confirm when it had sent out a given notice, even though it could often take people, say, a week or two after that in order to actually receive it. 
meaning they received far less time than they did before. Not only that, but the consequences of noncompliance were much higher than they would have been otherwise. Another effect of automating this particular system is that the number of skilled caseworkers were actually dropped in favor of people who weren't necessarily caseworkers, but who were there to manage the automated system and to make sure that it was working properly. In effect, what this led to is an an increasing amount of rigidity in this particular bureaucracy, making it less flexible to the people that it was actually supposed to serve. And this is actually an example of the sort of thing that I'm talking here with scaling, something that we have to continually keep in mind, which is as we kind of interact with these automated systems, these automated bot systems, because these systems are not managed by any particular person, if your particular problem falls outside of the expertise of that automated system, then it can be very, very hard for you to get help for your problem. What can end up happening is that this system, instead of being something useful to a given person for navigating their particular problem, instead becomes a kind of obstacle for someone to either get the help from a person that they actually need or for them to receive the service that they're actually looking for from that system. So with these things in mind, the key questions for this episode are, how can companies properly inform their users so that they can make informed decisions about what they're doing? Why is it that we have to prove to our technical systems that we are human? How should we think about the trade-offs between security and convenience? This podcast would not have been possible without the help of the Digethics team, Nicole Smith and Luis Salinas. The intro and outro track Dreams was composed by Benjamin Tissett through bensound.com. Our website is digethics.org, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Facebook and Twitter at digethics and on Instagram at digethicsfuture. You can also email us digethics at mindandculture.org. Now I am pleased to present you with my conversation with Bernd Jerwachter. What you had mentioned to me last week that I want to talk about today is about CAPTCHAs. Right. Uh, so, well, I think there's a couple of things you should probably touch on. So, you know, first off, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about captchas? So, so captchas are going to be those little, they're like pictures that show up, and you have to kind of categorize them. It's like a, are you a human quiz? So, you should talk about a little bit about what captchas are, and then about why it's necessary to have captchas, which I think speaks to how bots are trying to access counts. Like all the time. Yeah, it's so, uh, just to recap. Uh, recap capture with a captive audience. Um, capture has evolved over time. It started out with just recognizing uh, uh, numbers, and now it's at the point because there's countermeasures from the bots. They figured out how to solve captures in AI, right? So the latest incarnation is this: where they show you a mosaic of pictures, you know, fragments of a photo, and then ask you, "Can you see the bicycles? Or which pictures contain a truck or a traffic light? Things like this." And at some point in time, it came out. Somebody reported that they use that to train image recognition algorithms completely unrelated to the actual main or communicated use case of proving to a website, you know, like your online banking, that you're actually a human, not a web bot. And from what I've heard, it's like half of the clicks that you do, that, you know, let's say you do four clicks and say, now we, we think you're human. And then the other four clicks or actually train the AI. And my, my ethical concern was that I didn't know about that. What if I don't want to train AI, right? What, what if I'm worried about the AI takes my job? So I want to have the choice to know I don't want to train an AI. And uh, I'm not informed about it. 
And the second part is I'm a captive audience. In order to get on my online banking, which is a vital thing that I need to do in my life, I can't do without, I'm forced to use this CAPTCHA so I can't opt out. So I have no decision autonomy. A, it's not informed. B, I have no way to, to opt out. And that's, you know, they can push on whatever. There's no committee and decides whether this is okay or not. It's the, the company creates a CAPTCHA and my bank is using it to make that decision on behalf of me and there's no recourse or what you call redress, you know. And that fits into the scheme, uh, one of the ethical principles, autonomy, decision autonomy, and, you know, informed consent. And somebody else makes decisions on behalf of me. And I'm not, and they keep it from me, right? So there's a, why didn't you tell me about this and let me make decisions? You probably assumed that I might not consent it, so you kept it from me. That's the general concern. The, the capture technology is outsourced, isn't it? Like, don't companies just kind of right. take it wholesale from some other developer? They're not... Well, uh, I mean, I see the same captures everywhere, so I feel I like they're probably connected. Recapture was a company, and I think Google bought them. And then, yes, the bank, basically, it's a web service. They don't even host it. They link another website that's embedded. And uh, that's why I have a trust relation with my bank. But I inadvertently, this is also not obvious to most people, that Recapture is actually another company who has my data, right? It's like you said, the bank doesn't actually do it. They link back to the company doing the service, and that. Third-party companies harvesting my data when I think I'm the protector of my bank. That's where that lack of informed consent comes in, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I've done this with my bank. It's like, hey, I don't appreciate that. You're not communicating it. I'm used to the European standards where there's a long web page explaining exactly what happens when you have to opt in and this and that, which is annoying to the Europeans. But when they said, we have no controller, it's like, well, somebody in your bank must have made the decision to use that service, right? And it's always hard to reach an accountable party and even express your dismay and let alone have any control over the process. These CAPTCHAs are, in essence, supposed to protect you from bots, but they're being used to train bots mm-hmm. and that the previous generation of CAPTCHAs was debunked by bots in such a way that they had to completely change the way the technology works. And so you have to go through this arcane process of strange picture identification, which I mean, I have to admit, I, I don't always get it right because the pictures can be are a very grainy, bad quality. That's a good point. Sometimes you feel as a human to prove that you meant you know, dignity comes in as an ethical concern. <laughs> right, it, it, exactly. So, and even what you're saying now is that the way that CAPTCHAs are working now is also being used to train AIs specifically for image recognition, which means we're, we're going to be on a treadmill, aren't we? Where eventually there's going to be bots that are really good at this form of captchas and then they'll have to do some other weird thing to prove that you're a human it's yeah a, a we're like mechanical turk right where they hire people to do image recognition of training ice so people know it and they outsource that and we become you know slave labor without even knowing it but this is not even the latest generation if, if you the ones i like best where there's a button click here to prove you human click on it and then it, it continues like that was it. How did they know I'm a human? But what they do, they track your mouse movement and they have statistics to figure out how humans move their mouse. And the latest generation actually has a footprint like a cookie where they have certain parameters from your system from which they infer that you're a human because the hackers or the, the bot makers have a different footprint. So that goes back together a whole bunch of data about that you don't know about. And they already know you're human. Like, wait, that's getting to the creepy level. How do you know I'm a human? I want to prove that I'm a human, but how do you already know that? It's convenient, but it goes back to the, I, I feel creeped out by some surveillance, what's trying to do from all of uh, surveillance capitalism, right? 
It definitely is a bit unsettling to think about how the verification of mouse movements is tied to a virtual profile of how it is that I use my mouse already. It's actually something I haven't really thought about before. I, you, I mean, it's plausible, it makes sense, but... seen them, right, where you just click a button, it's the ultimate capture where you say, oh, that's convenient, which this is often how companies... I just assumed it was a bad capture. Like, it was just the, the just I don't the know, the entry-level pack, package or whatever, right? They couldn't afford the photos, so here's a checkbox. I think it also has to do, uh, one way it might be working is, uh, like I said, I'm not actually sure exactly, and, and as a technologist I'm inferring, could also be that the rendering of the click that button is actually a, an image that traditional web pages have a lot of markup that would tell about what the structure of what a human mm-hmm. but there's a way to render visual on a screen without it being in the HTML code. So it might just be only a human could possibly see that button, right? That there's an, a bot, when I say click here, the bot I click where, right? Only the human sees that visualization. That would be the more ethical version, but I have heard about Google doing a footprint of your computer to they were told not to do cookies anymore. So what they did, they figured out a better version of the cookie is more hidden and not obvious, so people can't have an opinion about it. <laughs> I mean, they own the browser, and we do most things through a web browser, so uh, they have all kinds of proprietary measures in the browser. And if I had to provide a solution, it's like, okay, here's the criticism, be transparent, right? Let people opt in and out. Tell them exactly what you're doing, for what purpose, how they, it benefits them, and let them decide whether it really... Yes, I decide what benefits me, not some patronistic organization. And transparency always saves your reputation, right? Company never got in trouble for, this is what we're planning to do, involve me. It's like, okay, I choose not to do business, but thank you for involving me. Thank you for letting my voice matter. Yeah, again, a couple things that we've already touched on, but I think it'd be important to bring up here. I do think that Google would have a lot to gain from explaining the actual security problem. So the the amount of bots that are just trying to hack into things at every moment, every day is... Uh, it, yeah, it, it's a lot more than I think most people imagine. That's why we need things like two-factor identification. I even mean, that can I, be fake. I, even two-factor can be uh, hacked, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it, no system is going to be perfect, but the, the nice thing about two-factor identification is, at least in my case, if I see something where a password is compromised and I know I didn't log into something, I change it like immediately just because yeah. that's very, and it's I, very scary. I don't, I don't want to lose access to that account. And just a quick, you know, what's two-factor authentication? That is when you try to log into a website and then it calls your phone number or sends your text to a different device that's like, Assuming only that person would have that phone number or that phone handy, but that's been subverted and it goes back to, because I worked in a lot of IT security, there's really no technically, you can't secure the whole chain just through technical means. You can always socially engineer. If you look at Kevin Mitnick, like the most notorious hacker in the US, he wrote a book and he says, 80% of my hacks were social engineering where I pretended to be somebody who was not and somebody else gave me that password. You can do the end-to-end encryption and in the end, uh, an app can watch what you do on screen or, or somebody call you, hey, I'm off from you know, I need your password. And there's no way to technically force it needs to go back and fostering trust amongst humans, not rely entirely on technical systems. Because any technical system that can enforce security can also be programmed to subvert it. Certainly. And it's actually funny because I don't know if you're familiar, but there's this comic strip called The Oatmeal. And I believe it's from 
the oatmeal. But but the, there's basically a a way of using words, like really small words. You put like two or three of them together in order to make a longer password. Because, you know, the way that password encryptions worked at that point was, you know, you just kind of run through, you know, like A through like zero, basically, right? Like you run through all the letters, all the numbers, and you just run through all of them. So basically... It's like, well, the longer your password is, the less likely it is that that can be compromised. But again, if you have a method like that, we're using a simple algorithm, even like a, a simple algorithm that supposedly only humans can use, you can create a bot to do that. So right. it can get, it can, it can make up small passwords like cat, horse, dog, right. well, 22. So or this, this is an illusion just because it's complicated mm-hmm. humans that means uh, it's complicated an algorithm. The other fallacy with this long password is uh, it's weakest link, right? The, mm-hmm. the hacker doesn't need to guess your password, but you will eventually store it somewhere else, right? Or it's saved as a cookie. Security is always weakest link. And to do a good analogy, while well, Europe is underwater, right? The Netherlands, you know, they had lots of rain that flooded. And mm-hmm. the dams in the Netherlands, because it's under sea level, the dams were designed to keep the sea out. It was never intended to protect from the other side. So they have like hundreds of miles of dam. And when there's, it doesn't matter where the hole is, then the sea will come and flood the whole country. So it doesn't matter how much you enforce one area of the chain, then the, the weakness somewhere else will still flood the system. The same thing as computer security. The password is just one part in bigger security chain. If that's bulletproof, then it just find another attack. It's called the attack vector, right? So. This is all designed for humans to feel secure, but it doesn't really make you... And a complicated number sequence is only complex to a human brain. Computers were designed to recognize long number, to handle long number sequences. So a lot of these security measures are for social purposes to make people feel more... Uh, like with the... You're familiar with the, the credit card, how they started at some point in time to put another three-digit number on the back, the CD, CDD number. All that oh, okay, yeah. makes the 16-digit number three digits longer, but if somebody has your card, they just copy the number on the back, you know, how they basically take a copy of your card. That's the yeah. same process, can copy the number on the back. So what did that really solve? It, it also makes me think of, you, you know how your, your password will get, like, rated <laughs> when you create it? Uh, like, there's, like, a green, yellow, and a red. Right, it has to be an exclamation mark or, like, a special character, upper, lowercase, none of, yeah. But this is this drifts off into computer security. If we go back with an ethical lens, it's really how do you train people to not, you know, the developers, well, not everybody's a hacker, right? There's corporations who use that in a non-hacking, well, it's a bad word because Facebook actually is located on one hacker way. They have this hacker ethics, but not in the term of ransomware, you know, a criminal organized crime. How do you tell people it's not okay, right? It's just because you managed to hack that, like the guy, was it clear of you? Or the Danish researcher who hacked into a dating site accounts to get the profiles and on the notion that anything that's on the internet is public good. It's like, yeah, but you hacked into accounts to get there. It was clearly not public, right? It's like, well, they should have picked better passwords. What's the argument? It's like, you don't get the point. The spirit of a password is to signal you that it's private. Not if I can hack it, it's mine. It's like, if I manage to break into the bank, it's my money legally, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's actually, it's, it's really funny that you, you put it that way because, you know, one of the things we know from things like Cambridge Analytica is, you know, if there's certain exploits in the system where you can suddenly get access not just to that person's data, but also to all of their friends' data and maybe even friends of friends. And you can just kind of, you know, it's actually staggering how, how much you might actually be able to get access to just by being able to crack into accounts that are low-hanging fruit, so to speak. 
But even as you mentioned earlier, you can ask also hack, say, like the cookie system. So the thing that's holding the password. I, I think that part of the reason why security is so important at the moment is because of what you mentioned earlier in terms of ransom attacks, which I mean, I've hadn't been thinking about them as much until, you know, we had really started talking about them like a month or two ago. But now that I'm more aware of it, I just see them in the news all the time of there's been a ransom attack against this company or against that company, basically holding their information system hostage in exchange for money and then using usually like some form of cryptocurrency to to pay out. And then just to be clear, these ransomwares are driven by organized crime or partially state actors, right? Russia harbors a lot where they openly tolerate them because it's, you know, there's this political Russia versus the United States, it's historical Cold War. And that's not clearly they behave unethical, but it's organized crime. Crime by definition is unethical and they will never change their behavior because, you know, they clearly don't really care about uh, laws and the, the bigger issues in, in the in the modern, I don't know how to frame the demography, but because it's not necessary to this younger generation of technologists, we had that in the 1980s where a lawyer couple spammed the Usenet. There was a volunteer network where people were discussing, kind of like similar to Reddit, right? And they commercially exploited it, even though the ethic of that forum, because it's run by volunteers, was to not exploit it commercially. They kind of invented spam this. They said, we do it because it's possible, because no law keeps us from it, and it's technically possible, therefore we're morally justified to do that, which basically diverging value systems. And that's kind of the audience we're trying to reach, to, hey, just because it's possible, Legal is just one way, but ethics is kind of like, is this the right thing? I'm not waiting until somebody slaps me in the head. I proactively think about, this is okay, what if somebody would do this to me? And there's this hacker ethic, if it's possible, then it's all right. And I decide that as an individual versus, how do other people feel about that, right? I don't think we have that argument with organized crime because they don't really concern themselves with that. You know, they, they operate in the shadows. They don't really suffer as an individual from some social repercussions because they're usually in the dark, you know. Literally, the individuals who we don't know, so they have no reputation to lose. Right. And I think when we're having discussions like this one, it is important to keep in mind that we're not explicitly talking about people who are looking to operate outside of the rule of law, uh, p- people who aren't looking to act ethically, but rather people who are looking to exploit systems, exploit people, and other sorts of things. Where, Whereas I think if we were to talk about those people, it's more... How can we protect ourselves against those things in reality rather than feeling like we're protecting ourselves when we're not, which I think from everything we've talked about so far has been a big point, right? And it's actually funny because analog writing stuff down is in some ways more secure than it's ever been, even though that used to be don't leave your password to your computer by your computer. And I still wouldn't recommend doing that. But In a lot of ways, because everything's so remote, it actually is more secure than just leaving things in your browser. Yeah, they literally call that cold storage. There's uh, Swiss companies. The Swiss army used to have huge hangars in the Swiss mountains in the Cold War where they had their all the military gear stored. So there was like three miles of granite on top of it, totally nuclear. And and as they demilitarized, they rent out a lot of the space for cold storage where it doesn't have any connection to the internet. So nobody can reach it unless you walk into the mountain, which is super obscure. The other, I just mentioned, the word obscurity, security by obscurity. No matter how much data you put on your computer and how you name it or how you, uh, an algorithm sifts through, that's what computers were invented to sort through vast amounts of information. 
But if you look at my office, I have a million post-its. I have paper all over, flying all over. I have millions of books. If you were in my office and you knew there would be a password, which I actually have some of my stuff written on, you would even know which of my scribblings are an actual password or just my, my ideas. So it's kind of, and there's no way to automate this process, right? There's no algo that, I mean, maybe they could take pictures of and that it's super, it's almost not worth it. That's the benefit of the, the analog method that 90% of people write down long passwords and put it on their keyboard. I know this when I was a, a computer technician. That's like, I literally sometimes, oh, dang it. They wanted me to fix their windows. They already went home. How do I log in? It's like keyboard, password, login. It was an ethical case to use that password. But so that analog version doesn't work when there's a common standard that they have. Yeah, no, if if you just keep something as easy to look at as that, it's probably not quite as secure as it otherwise could be. What I'm personally interested in, because we're still back at defense mechanisms versus I would like to raise more awareness and come back to a society where there's a called social shame. And I watch the Chinese developments with great curiosity. I'm not saying I'm endorsing them, but they have a lot of mechanisms. They do this total surveillance. But in the end, if you jaywalk over the street, the first thing they do is a big billboard and they show your face and everybody else, look, there's a jaywalker. <laughs> it's like that used to be the old model of, model of accountability when People didn't have an online world where everything was face-to-face, where it kept a lot of the not-hardcore criminals from keeping stupid stuff because other people saw you and you got socially, uh, what do you call, shunned or, or yelled at. And that's missing online because a lot of actors, anonymous or some data scientists or technologists, nobody really knows who created that algorithm or caused that problem because they're part of this large supply chain. I believe a lot of problems, ethical problems, could be solved if it just becomes more transparent who's doing what. As soon as people know, oh, hey, whatever, that, that, you know, the people at Cambridge Analytica, right? It's like, oh, it was your idea to do this. How dare you, right? Like, just creating the transparency, then you move away from uh, imposing rules or micromanaging everything or just going back to a more social accountability, I believe, will clear up a lot of these minor ethical violations because a lot of happens because there's no consequences or nobody will find out, right? A a couple of things on this point. I think, in some sense, what you're saying is true in that there's there's not as much potential for recognizing who the bad actor might be in a lot of cases if there's no trail, right? If there's some way to kind of preserve anonymity. But I will say for a lot of people, they, they experience social shame much more acutely than they did in the past because of things like social media and whatnot over stupid things. (laughs) I don't really know how to put it, right? But but just like the the social enforcement mechanisms seem to be kind of hyper-focused on like performative things. Well, it's the slippery slope too, because if we use social shaming, you know, the whole doxing, there's also social shaming that's not justified. That's kind of more like vigilante justice, that Mm. we, the mob, decide you did something wrong. It's like, wait, that, that sounds like lynch, uh, the, like the same they had in the Wild West with the lynch mob, just because 50 guys are really upset doesn't mean you could do the right to judge them. I think one of the other things I'll say is having individual communities with their own social rules and enforcement, I, I think is, at, at least to me, seems fine. Where like, you know, so it's like, for instance, subreddits have their own moderators, they have their own rules, they enforce those rules. And it's the kind of the relationship between then the website, Reddit, and the subreddit and the subreddit users that kind of becomes complicated, where it's like, well, we have this thing, but maybe we don't agree with the existence of this thing. And depending on what it is, you know, maybe that's justified, maybe it's not. 
what's, what's interesting, I, I spend a great deal reading about corporate science, especially around the Cold War and how diplomacy used to work. And one of the methods of preventing the war is to slow down communication that heads of states the slower you communicate, the more you deliberate, you know, your rational brain kicks in. So what one thing that diplomats do is stall, I mean, you know, like make it slower, the thinking and talk a lot, keep it from rash decisions. And I keep thinking one of the ideals could be to have like democratic process, kind of like ballot initiatives, but it has to be slower than social media because I don't think people delivered enough when it's like, oh, I dislike this post. I look, 5 million people didn't like it. There's clearly something wrong. Yeah, but you didn't deliberate. It was very impulsive. It's hardly like buses, as it were. Like, how can we find a process that's faster than Congress that takes 10 years to pass a reasonable law versus five minute, you know, thumbs down, judge, well, that doesn't even work, but Somewhere in the middle ground, it's like before you judge somebody, you need to spend a week thinking it through, right? And then if enough people get upset about it, up you thought it through a week and, and, and talk with other people. But, but it's like goes from one extreme, the, the law is way behind the technology developments. You know, every week something new comes out that takes countless 10 years to understand, let alone react to it, versus the, the, the mob kind of mentality that you have on, uh, I think that that's more of an infrastructure thing than a technical like encryption thing. It's more, it requires both process change, technology change, and then human mindset change. One thing they started doing on Twitter, and I've had to be more active on Twitter in part because of this podcast, is actually when you if you go to retweet something without clicking on it first, you'll get a little message just telling you about that. Like, oh, hey, do you, do you, do you still want to post this? It looks like you haven't read whatever this is. Oh, like these are you sure buttons? Which yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's actually been pretty effective in my mind of like, oh, yeah, I haven't read this. Maybe I should look at it first before I tweet it. Because, you know, I, I've seen this on Facebook of like, oh, did you read this? And being like, oh, no. Right. So, so it's funny because, you know, at times people respond to something as if you've read it when you haven't. It's, it's interesting you mention that because I just had a debate with a German friend. Talk about the whole TLDR and how we're like old school. I get upset about it. At the same time, he said, there's just a lot of content that's written so badly that creates this artificial tension that makes me read far more than was really necessary, where it's that the same thing could have been said in five paragraphs instead of five pages. So, and I find myself too, where I have this information overload, where I constantly feel there's more stuff on my reading list. I have to move on to the next important piece. So I take shortcuts. I, Speedly, like lawyers have always done that, right? Way back where you uh, have a 10 page document, but you have only five minutes, so you speed read. It's, it's kind of like what the, the bigger theme is, it's more philosophical than, than ethical, like, uh, decelerate instead of accelerate, right? Decelerate to be, live a more conscious life, right? That we, we go back to a more deliberate, right? Using our outer brain instead of everything emotional, reactive, which we kind of engineered into from the whole marketing, the, the, what do you call it? The marketing complex, right? Like this was by design to take act on this offer now and it'll expire in five minutes, right? Or other people, you know, hurry or don't miss out, right? This whole conditioning to act fast so we turn out our rational thinking. I think just decelerating the thinking and whatever built social media mechanisms, like you said, are you sure you want to do this? Stop and think. Don't just reflex. A lot of our intuition, intuition these days is uh, conditioned and engineered. This intuition is basically when you've been exposed enough to a pattern, it becomes like riding a bicycle. You don't have to think, right? You, you've used it so much that it's internalized subconsciously, but this subconscious can be engineered. You, you can, you can condition somebody to believe it's their intuition. And they do this politically, right? Where you think this is just, you've heard it enough. You start believing what well, must be true. And at some point in time, you don't even think about it. So it's, 
dangerous what people think. But my intuition told me, it's like, you don't realize that your intuition was manipulated or engineered. And that goes back to the informed consent. If somebody thinks they need to influence me, they should be honest enough to say this is our intent to find or undermine to change me without naming where I'm being changed. I, I consider that very unethical. So tie, kind of tie this into informed consent, as you, you've mentioned a, a number of times so far. I think there are a couple of different problems. The, the first one is information overload. So people kind of being bombarded with perhaps legal information, you know, stuff that's not very digestible, things that don't make sense. So, for instance, lots of terms and conditions people don't read. There's actually this really famous case of someone sending like a bank a revised terms of condition with like an extra clause in there. And so the bank filed a lawsuit, but... They agreed, they agreed to the terms as well. So it was this kind of interesting judo flip on them with everything that happened. Well, the, guy, he, the guy who changed their own conditions and they signed off on it. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> and they tried to sue him and their defense was, well, we didn't read it. <laughs> it's like, oh, the very thing you expect of the customers. If we talked on the last conversation of we talked about this offline uh to use a positive example, to watch Google over the years, how they kind of really put effort into whenever they had a new version of the terms of service, they had a, it's kind of like when software comes out with a new version, here's the features that changed, right? That, and then they also had like this summary, like, here's the legal text, and here's like a sentence, what we mean by that in normal language. And that was a good move in the right direction to kind of like, what was your thought behind that and make it understandable for me? Because I think a lot of the obscurity is by design. So I'm going to throw one more European perspective in there. In, in Germany, there's this concept, if a person can't consent to something they don't understand, right? If you throw a legal document at somebody in legalese language and somebody clicks okay on it, like it's not really consent if they didn't understand. It's like a monkey clicked on the okay button, but they can't read English or the, the language. You can hardly say the monkey consented to anything if he doesn't even know the concepts. And... On the other hand, even in Germany, you have this concept, just because you're not aware of a law doesn't keep you from, you're violated from prosecution, that you have this, your duty to familiarize yourself with the law. But there's also the way of, uh, as part of information warfare, to overload people deliberately that there are no denial of service attack. Like you throw so many data at a person that you know they can't absorb it and render some dysfunctional to, to render uh, decisions. So this is, how do you address that, right? How do you? This is the law you need to understand it versus it's a bad intent which might be with traps so you just click okay knowing that you didn't really agree to anything because you didn't understand it. To kind of tie this to CAPTCHAs, one of the kind of central issues that does come up in relationship to bot attacks and being actually informed about the situation is the increasing sophistication of bots to impersonate people. This can happen in you know, bad ways, like people get calls from automated systems. So for instance, almost every call I get these days that's not from someone I know is from some bot telling me it's a government organization. But it can be much harder to tell if something's a bot, say over email, in a message. It, you know, <laughs> like sometimes people just aren't good at communicating. So it's Dating sites are filled with bots and catfishers. And yeah, you go through a Turing test with every online social interaction. You basically have to go through the Turing test. And what's, what's cute, I know this sounds funny, but 
uh, there's some chatbots when you go on a website, something pops up. It's done so badly that you know it's just a script. It pretends to be a person, but it's really, you can tell it's mechanistic. It has no clue what it's talking about. And I appreciate that because it's almost like they put effort on making sure that I know it's not a real person. It's like, there's a picture of somebody. Hi, I'm Sally. And I'm your customer service representative. But then the way they act, like, thank you, making it easy for me, knowing you're not a real person versus the ones, uh, I need your social security and you know, all these sophisticated things. And then, then I realize, oh crap, I just gave out my stuff to the misleading aspect again, right? To fool me. It's almost like a text version of deep fakes. And that is one of my troublesome, uh, the observations of troublesome trends is using AI not to solve a complex puzzle or problem, but to say half the AI research for my observation is now designed on fooling people to believe it's a person. And that's just to me fundamentally unethical that you put effort into deception. What is it, the marketing engineering program in uh, one of the California universities, the guy who is basically responsible for dark patterns? Where he literally, there was a university course, I don't know which university it was. Oh, yes, yes. He was a marketing guy. He wasn't a technology guy, but he basically encouraged this how you can use technology to deceive people. Or, or not deceive, but nudge them into certain decision path. Like, the yes, buy it as like big prominent 3D button and the no thanks. Or say, no, I, I'm a loser. I'm not interested. I've seen something like I'm not cool enough to accept this offer. Or it's like light gray and dark gray background, dark patterns. You know what I'm talking about, right? The, I had the the unfortunate pleasure of downloading a game that I thought would be fun, you know, for a few minutes and was mostly ads and trying to close those ads was very difficult. A a kind of this, this Herculean a, task in itself. So this whole uh, complex of the app ecosystem where I would say a large share of the apps are right out fraudulent and Apple doesn't catch up with it. You know, they have the intention to filter them out, but they can't catch up with it. And that's from an ethical standpoint, it's like the old Trojan horse pattern, right? You lure somebody with something attractive, but it's really subverting the system. And it's also an education thing. How do people still fall for that? Once I was aware that most apps are malicious, and I've experienced that too, where you try to click on something and they swap out the UI, so you clicked on accept even though you didn't mean to. Amazon did this a while back This uh, when they started this uh, one-click purchase, and they moved the button around or made it so that I clicked on something and didn't intend. And, oh, I did one purchase and then you could opt out you could reverse the purchase but and they undid that because a lot of people complained about it but these are small enough players that they if they rip off like a couple of thousand people and then they close up shop and they made their their profit which is really sad also we kind of implicitly generalize you know everything coming up russia is bad it actually damages a lot of legitimate and unintended people there was a i do electronic music and every once in a while i look for a new device to control my music and there's a guy in Russia who's like a do-it-yourself and he's kind of like Kickstarter. He, he builds the stuff and now he's very amateur. He does it himself for the big corporation. He, he builds it in his own garage. Looks really cool. I know a lot of people here who bought it, but the ordering process is like a very amateurish website and then ask for your credit card number or PayPal. And it's like the whole thing smells fishy, except I know from the community and that guy probably doesn't get as much business as he should because, oh, he's Russian and he uses online and everything looks fishy. Because everybody judges him by the stereotypes, even though I'm pretty convinced he's a good guy and then this. But so it's, that makes it hard too. Then goes back to the trust model because the bad actors speak to that conflict where, where people I'd like to trust somebody. I like to give them the benefit of the doubt and then they undermine that. And once you get to that level of cynicism, well, there's nothing but betrayal out there. Yeah. And another example, actually, well, well, not an example, but the kind of the, the converse of this is 
things can seem really official, but still be scams, which I, I think is also the case. Been the case. It has nothing with yeah. online. Uh, in the mail, I've always gotten like the US Mint or from uh, email urgent, and it looks like it's a government, and you open it up and it's just spam marketing. So it's almost that mindset has been there before online and, and digital tools. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Because actually in the kind of the cryptocurrency space, one of the biggest things that can happen is, you know, kind of turning, I don't know, your Bitcoin into something that's actually worthless. But because they had a pretty good website, people think it's a real project, that it has real backers behind it and everything else when it doesn't. I mean, this is one of the things where we need to be careful that we don't make it sound like digital tools invented bad ethics. Go all the way in the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Now they have the snake oil. That's right? like this will heal all ailments, and it's just you know like snake oil, and that makes it also hard to combat it. Not surprised that the marketing as a business, why social media and modern, you know, Google and Facebook, how do they make their money with advertising? Right? That's their core business, and all the deceptive practices go back to those are marketing companies want to influence consumers into buying their stuff or spending their money with them. That has been around long before digital tools. Almost like you had an existing cultural business it's, it's almost like part of the american way to persuade somebody to buy your stuff or uh even politically and a lot of people like that like persuade me or create leadership that i can follow that i personally find it hard to get traction amongst a lot of people it's like why is this bad i like to be informed i like to be persuaded right and they don't realize how there's a fine line between unduly manipulated versus somebody who tries to add give you a value proposition this is actually, there's a whole different, but if you look at, uh, for example, German culture, where there's this level of distrust in the, it exists from precedence. Like, yeah, yeah, you prove to me what you say is actually right. But I'm not going to believe it just because you say it or you say it in a pleasant way. A lot of those things work just based off of numbers, right? And it's not that they have a high return at all. So, for instance, they, they have this uh, really elaborate scam related to, like, stock prices or, like, crypto coin prices where they'll say, okay, look, uh, the price is going to go up, right? But but they send to 50% of people, they say it'll go up to 50% of people, it'll go down, right? And so to all the people they succeed with, with their tips, right, they'll keep sending them emails, right? And they just do the same thing. But by the end, they'll have sent someone six or seven correct tips, right? And then they'll ask for money at that point. Right, yeah, and and, and so and so it seems credible, but it's it's strictly on the basis of managing numbers and probabilities that they're able to get something that seems legitimate because the information was accurate. The forecasting, and, and it goes back to the social engineering, right? It's not just uh, manipulating data, but they're, they're pinging and they realize which are the goals or which are the people who they can evoke their, their, their trust. So this is kind of what modern technology with social media a lot of this feedback loop that if you have bad intentions or or you want to make money, you're only, you're more like Machiavellian. You've always love to hurt people, but you focus only on your own interests and then process you hurt people. This being able to put something out there, see how people react. This is why one of the guidance for spam is don't ever respond to them. Even if you say, aha, do you think I'm that stupid? Like my brother does this. He literally argues with spam emails and you just send them the signal that your email is legit and they profile you. Everything you say now, they'll profile. They send that data to somebody else. And we talked a while back how the elderly, like our parents' generation, you know, like in the 70s and 80s, which is, they, they still there of a generation that believe everything because they had trusted figures on TV, right? It was a little bit more narrow and managed ecosystem. So they look at the screen and uh, our, our dad uh, shares that like, uh, 
It said your Windows system is infected. Call us, or we can uninfect it. Right? It's it's they didn't actually infect anything. They just suggested that something's wrong, and then you paid hundred dollars for an hour uh, where they really didn't do anything. I know it sounds cynical and more on the distrustful end, and I'm actually missing legitimate opportunities or, or things. But during COVID, this thing really ramped up when the when the the less ethically concerned figured out that everybody's doing stuff online and really really ramped up. And you read this in the reports of security companies. And it's gotten so bad that uh, I took the default stance it's brought. And it's also not made easier. So, for example, I, my phone is from T-Mobile. And they use the third party. And the whole process, even Google told me, don't click on this. And my uh, malware software kicked off. It's like, this is fraudulent. So I okay, ignore this. And then it turned out it was a late bill. You know, they stopped my account because I didn't pay the bill. Because we try to reach you. It's like, yeah, but use spammer and phishing methods. All the security mechanism warned me, right? Like, you guys are... If you're a legitimate company, you should know better how to how to do your 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 communication with the customer. But uh, I had literally people I hadn't heard from from years send me emails, and then all my emails ended up in the spam folder that I had to manually determine was real. And one of the ways spammer or the criminals they can read the email. The email unless it's encrypted, everybody can read this right in transit. So they do like, hey, it's your brother so and so using name using you know details that only I thought my brother knew, but we talk about it in email and. It gives a sense of familiarity. Who else would know this information while everybody listens to all your conversations with the loved one or the, like, it's almost like the only way to solve is a very cynical, but Zuba describes this very eloquently how that's already the erosion of society. Then. To kind of give a more positive example of the ways in which trust can work, for instance, something like eBay, for instance, really only succeeded because people acted in good faith, basically. At that crucial point in which they're trying to get that network effect for people to really take it on, the overall number of interactions was so positive, right, that people believed that it was legitimate. Even though, you know, even though there was kind of a, a bit of distrust still in the back of people's minds through using the early days of eBay, which I think is still fair, by the way. I'm just saying that it's, it's actually an interesting thing where if those systems do work, they can work remarkably well, but that also makes incentivizes spamming. Right. So I haven't followed eBay in a while, and I'm familiar with you talk with. eBay kind of pioneered that whole using feedback to generally create a level of trust. I would say Amazon did the same thing, but it's probably like, what, 10, 15 years later, and the Amazon system is being exploited left and right, including by Amazon or, or its vendors. It's like, so... I'd be curious now, why did it work for eBay and why does it not work for Amazon? But it's also different times. There's probably 20 years in between one or the other. You know, eBay is not that popular or, or that not conscious as, as Amazon is. Because, okay, here's an example. Here's a counter example. Great. Negative example, positive example. What did they do different? And it's not always they did something different. It was just a different time. Why did MySpace fail and Facebook succeed, right? Looks like the same thing, right? Well, it's slightly different times, right? Facebook proliferated through mobile devices. When MySpace came out, there were no mobile devices yet, right? So it's often factors that don't, are not obvious why one worked or the other. Yeah, Facebook or, and MySpace is actually funny because you will see really young people w wishing that they could play a song <laughs> on their profile, right? Whether it's on their tr Twitter profile and whatnot. And it's like, oh, but you're just... You're, you're asking for something that was already implemented. People hated it, so so they did something else. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by the technology regression. I'm old enough to have seen like at least three 
technology revolution was like the original internet, the fact that you network with people online, uh, then the whole web that's graphic, because my first experience with the internet, everything was text, or even CompuServe. It was pretty much text, that's where the semicolon dash parentheses smiley came from, and there was no graphics, right? Then you had websites where suddenly you had graphics, you know, and then social media is the third generation that I've seen, where now you have not just the text, but the whole emojis and like, and then network and social uh, news feed. And so an example was back in 91, 92, on CompuServe, you could type and you could see everybody's letter in real time. Most CompuServe was a closed system. They had a mainframe computer and millions of people in the world from all over worked directly. When you dialed up, you dialed into that mainframe. So it was all real time. And to me, it felt like I was talking with a real person. They typed fast, they backspaced, you could see every single letter in real time, and you felt like you were talking with a person. Just when you talk in person, somebody says something stupid. Well, wait, I take that back, right? They can't undo it. They, it's out there. It's just like that's how a conversation happens, like a spontaneous. And I felt that was the next best thing online with text. And at some point in time, Yahoo Messenger in the 90s said, people don't like that. They don't like that other people see their typos. So now you just sit there. And then at some point it's like, well, I don't know if they're typing. Are they still there? And then they did this. Somebody, and like you see this on the phone now, somebody's typing. Meanwhile, when it freezes up, it still says somebody's typing and they're long gone. You sit there, wait, it's like, that's the degeneration. We were there 20, 30 years ago where we created this situation of closeness by seeing all the little flaws that they made. In the process now, we made it actually more dysfunctional. But the, the mere fact that, that people actually use the phone mostly to text when we could do video chat, right? It's like, we have the means to read it. Why are people still texting? Because they don't want to be seen. They might not have makeup on, not have the right clothes on. So texting creates this abstraction level. The other thing that's funny to kind of bring this back to what we were talking about earlier is if you do see people typing in real time, you're probably not as worried about it being a bot than you would be otherwise. I mean, maybe you could kind of mimic well, that's the irony. It's complete. Uh, yeah. The bots already know that. Like, you can randomize the speed of your typing. There's really it's only human perception thinking, oh, that distinguishes the person. I think people have the wrong notion mm. of what the bot or what the computer can do. Lay people underestimate just how sophisticated computers can behave these days. Yeah. Based, based on what they mm. learn from human patterns. I mean, it's not that somebody programs them. It's literally they observe how humans behave. This is actually one of the arguments for privacy, right? That us having multiple personalities, you said that, like, you talk differently to your parents and you talk to your peers, your friends, versus business partner or, like, research partners. That is actually, we always have multiple personalities depending who we interact with, right? The, that's why it's special when you have a partner, you have a level of intimacy you, you don't have with strangers or to take that, that a lot of this, uh, surveillance state or, uh, what do you call surveillance capitalist takes that away saying, we assume you're only really one person. Right? We judge you by all the data we have and reduce you to one personality when that's actually not who we are. I think from kind of a more abstract philosophical perspective, that's always the case, right? Like you're not gonna be able to completely capture who somebody is just by the way they behave on stuff. Though I mean you can learn a lot about somebody by the <laughs> the things that they choose to talk about and who they choose to talk about them with. But I mean, personally I'm probably not comfortable with that. I don't know that like, like there are things that I would like to keep private, right? Especially things that I haven't thought about yet. Things I'd like to think about more. I, I meant more, yeah. not so much in the privacy sense, but more mm -hmm. uh, being judged or, you know, like in a very simplified way, a good right. analogy. We were just talking about uh, how GDP, the gross domestic product is a single number that's supposed to reflect the 
know, how the US, Germany, and Japan are the three richest countries. And yet, if you look under the covers, they have the highest degree of homelessness. And, you know, even Germany, there's 200,000 people who can't read and write. Or, uh, basically that number, you can have 100 billionaires and everybody else lives in the street. That still will be, US will have the highest GDP. Our GDP is that statistical central measure that doesn't reflect the actual society. And it's the same like if Facebook reduces me to one score and or says, oh, they're African-American, therefore they like this, as if every African-American behaves the same, right? It's like, you reduce me to these five numbers and then wonder why you're discriminating me or you're showing me inappropriate ads. And so the bigger risk is here to, for them reducing us. And if we treat it long enough this way, we start believing, right? Like, you know, how many teenagers commit suicide or have low self-esteem because based on what Facebook, you know, how, how they interface with Facebook and how many likes, how many friends they have, but the social media is, has an effect on us as people who we are and then reduces us, which in ethics I use uh, the dignity is one of the factors, like respect my dignity as a human and don't reduce, like don't say I'm vermin like they did with the, whenever genocide happens, right? They, they, they always talk about people like animals or, or lowly and it's almost social media does the same. You're just being reduced to somebody who buys jeans or who needs this product or it has an impact on us and Maybe this will be a good point to, to end on of the different kinds of strategies that people are taking. So, so on the one hand, there's kind of the the privacy strategy. So people will use things like VPNs, they'll use like Adblock, Ublock, stuff that kind of uh, strangles the data, right? Like it, it, you know, it makes it so you can't, it's harder to capture your profile. But there's actually this program that I've been looking at that I've been inter- interested in called Ad Nauseam which kind of spoofs clicks on ads to make it so that your your profile data is useless. And basically what I mean by that is because it clicks on everything, it doesn't know what you're interested in. It can't construct a specific profile around you. And so that's a very different thing. And I think this even speaks to you know, people design like anti-surveillance clothes and whatnot of how can you subvert the ways in which data capture happens through these different technologies and make it so that it can't kind of hone in right. on you the way that it could before. I want to, I want to add a comment to that. And that's actually something Shoshana Dubov speaks great deep in her Surveillance Capital uh, uh, book. Uh, these are tactical measures, right? And mm-hmm. they kind of make it go back to some, some what we call a uh, cops and rubber game or, or uh, uh, what do you call the Cold War uh, an arms race, right? And there's a huge risk. They already start doing this where if, if you try to obscure yourself, you can pass a law on this. You try to escape surveillance and makes it a crime, just like when early encryption was considered a crime, like Phil Zimmerman, the whole case in the 90s, when he wrote an open source, he gave the code away and that made him a criminal based on the US law was a crime to export. Encryption was considered military technology and he broadcasted it worldwide, so therefore he's exporting US military technology even though he invented it. It's very easy to do outlaw uh all this like guerrilla warfare and some of the big internet companies are actually trying to frame it that way, right? If you must have something to hide. You must be a criminal if you fight out spirit. And it goes back to, well, if, if, if that's your way, we'll outsmart you as a technology. So we take that as a challenge instead of, oh, you're signaling us that you want more privacy. We take that as an arms based challenge. So as much as I understand these activists, and I hope a lot of that is just to raise awareness, but it can't be a long-term solution that everybody defends the house with their own shotgun when we should be having an effective police force, right? Right. And that, that again, raises the larger question of 
it's always going to be, say, a combination of technology and society, right? You know, things that people are doing. Because uh, I think the last thing that I, I want to be involved in is in some sort of a, you know, some sort of a technical arms race between, say, you know, anti-surveillance technology and surveillance technology, right? That just seems like an endless cycle that's uh, going to take up a lot of time. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Bernd Derwachter. You can find more information about DigEthics on our website, digethics.org, and more information about our sponsoring organization, the Center for Mining Culture, at miningculture.org. If you'd like to respond to this episode, you can email us, digethics at miningculture.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at digethics, and on Instagram, at digethicsfuture. As we close out this episode, I think it'd be great to just think about how much we are increasingly dependent upon sophisticated automated systems for many of the services that we're looking to get today. However, one of the ways I think that we're the least informed today is the way in which our interactions with these automated systems are used in machine and learning processes to train yet further bot systems. As we sort of talk about in this episode, it seems just a little bit nefarious that our use of CAPTCHA systems is used to train CAPTCHA systems, which leads to more sophisticated CAPTCHA systems. And I think this speaks to the place in which we ended the episode in my conversation with Bernd, just talking about how there might be a kind of digital arms race between the security systems that are meant to keep bots out, the length of the extent that we have to go to prove that we are who we say we are. And as these systems have an increasing amount of reach, it seems like the verification process is going to be increasingly automated in ways that might not always be helpful. While I'm certainly very optimistic about changes and developments in these systems for the better, I think we always have to keep in mind the way in which direct automation can actually make systems far more rigid than it otherwise would be and prevent us from getting the help we need if we have a specific personal situation that we have to take care of. With that in mind, I'd really love to hear from you about what has your experience been like when you've been dealing with these kinds of automated systems. If you go to call a helpline and you get a bot instead of a regular person, how does that make you feel? What what is your immediate reaction to that? Have you been able to get the kinds of services that you need when you go through those processes? Have you had problems accessing particular accounts in which you weren't able to do so because of a particularly stubborn form of a CAPTCHA? I know that I've definitely had that happen before. And is there anything else that we should probably keep in mind as we're... Is there anything else we should keep in mind as we're increasingly dependent upon these kinds of automated systems? As always, I'd love to hear from you before our next conversation. This is Seth, signing off.